Let me pray over us first, though. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you this evening for the Abrahamic covenant that you've provided, that it, in fact, it turned into the eternal covenant, and that through um, Jesus Christ and him cutting the covenant in his blood, that we have eternal life through faith in him. Lord, for forever grateful, we ask that you would help us to think well upon your word, that you would use it to mold us, uh, to make us more like you, to make us more effective instruments in proclaiming your glorious gospel. And Lord, we ask that you would help conform us to the image of your Son. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, This evening, you can see we're going to be in the Abrahamic Covenant. Now, the first few slides, what I want to do is I want to build this um, tension where you're going to see that, in fact, humanity is so wicked prior to the flood that God has to send the flood. And I also want you to see that the wickedness of all of the nations and all of mankind necessitates that God would, in fact, create a new people. And, in fact, he is going to create a new people through Abraham. So you're going to see that I start in Genesis 4. That's what I want you to... I want you to kind of see the scriptures build to the Abrahamic covenant and see some of the reasoning uh, for, for instance, why is it that God judges the land of Canaan? Why is it that Israel is given the land of Canaan? Why is it that it's acceptable for God to wipe out all of the Canaanites? A lot of these questions are actually answered, and it helps us understand the importance of the Abrahamic covenant once we get to it. So with that, let me start off talking about Cain's banishment. And I'm going to build this case of how wicked men are becoming immediately in Genesis 4. Now remember, Cain, he murders his brother Abel. Abel, according to Hebrews 11.4, his uh, sacrifice was given by faith, or in faith, I should say, uh, whereas Cain's sacrifice was not. That's the implication we get from the uh, book of Hebrews. And so Cain's problem isn't the type of sacrifice, I believe, but rather it was not in faith. And so therefore it's rejected. He becomes angry. In fact, the evil in his heart is an indication that, in fact, he's not a believer because faith and obedience always go hand in hand in the Scriptures. So what we see here in Genesis 4, 12 through 16 is his banishment. And there's some important truths that we have to learn here, I think. It says, the Lord says this to Cain. He says, when you cultivate the ground, and by the way, this is the judgment because of his murdering his brother. He says, it will no longer yield its strength to you. You will be a vagrant and a wanderer on the earth. Cain said to the Lord, my punishment is too great to bear. Behold, you have driven me this day from the face of the ground, and from your face I will be hidden. And I will be a vagrant and a wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. So the Lord said to him, Therefore, whoever kills Cain, vengeance will be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord appointed a sign for Cain, so that no one finding him would slay him. Then Cain went out from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. First thing I want to point out is, you see where it says face, and he was going to be driven from the face of the Lord. He'll be hidden from him. This term face is panah in Hebrew. It's actually the same one right here. And the idea then is, remember, God is omnipresent. He is everywhere. However, there is a unique sense in which we have the divine presence, much like you would have the Shekinah glory, perhaps in the temple in Jerusalem. And so there's this unique dwelling presence that seems to be within the garden itself. And so Cain is scared because he's going to be outside of that presence. And what you see then is that God puts this sign on him. Literally in Hebrew, it's oath. Oath is a sign 
And the sign is that if anybody would hurt Cain, God will take matters into his own hands. Now, again, he's omnipresent, and he's also omniscient. He knows all things. But this just, I think, is an indicator that at this time, God is ruling men. Okay? The reason I point that out is because after the flood, in Genesis 9, 6, it says, If a man sheds a man's blood, so by man shall his blood be shed. So there, man is to take um, care of murderers. But here you get the indication that somehow God is. Now, perhaps God is going to use an agent to do so, but this may be a clue that God is, in fact, governing people directly or at least um, using angels and so forth to do so. So the other thing I want to point out is notice I have this underlined and bolded, the vengeance will be taken on him sevenfold. What you're going to see is in the next slides, Lamech, who is a descendant of Cain, he's going to boast to his wives that he will take vengeance 77-fold. And so what you're seeing is a vigilante. You're seeing wickedness increase on the earth. And so we see these subtle clues. For instance, in Genesis 4, 19 through 24, it says Lamech took, him, took to himself two wives. So let's just stop there. Uh, Genesis 2.24 says that for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife and they shall become one flesh. So we have one man, one woman in marriage, right? Well, notice right away, Lamech, he's deviating from that. And this is often a passage if I'm debating someone about gay marriage or whatever, I'll I'll take them to Genesis 4.19 and talk about how um, even subtly, the idea of having two wives is abhorrent to the Lord, and it's an indication that wickedness is increasing. Um, so let me continue then. It says, The name of the one, the wives, that is, was Adah, and the name of the other was Zillah. Lamech said to his wives, Adah and Zillah, Listen to my voice, you wives of Lamech. Give heed to my speech, for I have killed a man for wounding me and a boy for striking me. So there you have unwarranted uh, violence, right, that doesn't match the crime. And then he says, If Cain is avenged sevenfold, than Lamech 77-fold. So again, you see this wickedness increasing. He's taking matters into his own hand. And this is a sign that men are starting to deviate from what God has ordained, and therefore um, it's pointing towards the necessity of the flood. Now, when we come to this next section here in Genesis 6, what I want to show you is that the wickedness really increases now because I believe this section talks about um, relations between angels and men. And what ends up happening is these relations lead to men really um, trying to go after angels in an idolatrous and in a um, divination um, sort of mindset. Okay, so let me read the passage. Let me try to explain it to you. Genesis 6, 1 through 3, it says, Now it came about when men began to multiply in the face of the land and daughters were born to them that the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were beautiful. And they took wives for themselves, whomever they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not strive with man forever, because he also is flesh. Nevertheless, his days shall be 120 years. Uh, before I get into the sons of God, let me talk about this term strive and some implications from it. It comes from a Hebrew term that's what's called a hapax legomena. Now, hapax means once and only once. And so this is a hapax legomena, and that means this occurs only once in the entire Bible. The Hebrew word here is dean, just like you would say the person, the guy, dean, his name is dean. It, it, it's pronounced that way, dean. The debate that scholars have, because it's only used once, you have nothing else to compare it to, there's a word that has the same consonants, but it's vowel pointed differently, don. Okay? 
the debate is, should we translate this term strive, remain, or perhaps govern? The reason why govern is an option is because don, which has the same consonants, it's just vowel pointed different, it means to govern. And so some scholars think that dean is just a distorted uh, form of don. In other words, they just vowel pointed it wrong. Okay? Because remember, vowel points don't come until about 1000 AD. The original Hebrew text had all consonants. So these would have had identical consonants. Okay? Now, why is that important? Well, let's reread this section here, just this portion. It says, Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not govern with man forever, or govern man forever. Okay? That would be if, if it's understood as don. Now, why that's significant is it gives us another indication that Yahweh himself is governing mankind. Now, to be honest with you, I think that the evidence really supports the idea of a, um, probably translating as strive or best yet, I think, would be remain. Okay, why do I say that? Because the idea is that God's spirit, his ruach, um, it sounds very German, I like saying that. It sounds, um, right, ruach, his spirit won't strive or remain with man, and because of that, he doesn't live out as long as he does presently, the 900 or whatever years they're living. He's only going to live to 120 years. So the idea then is that God is so fed up with mankind, he is going to restrain his spirit, and they won't live forever. They won't, not forever, but they won't live as long as they are. And therefore, they won't be able to perpetrate the evils that they have. And perhaps there's something to the effect that they won't, for some reason, I don't know why, they won't be able to copulate now with the angels. And I don't know why that would be. But that leads me to the next issue, the sons of God. What are the sons of God? There's been three main interpretations of this over the years. The first one is what I used to hold to um, some two, three years ago, and I've changed my mind now. Uh, Number one is that the sons of God are the godly line of Seth marrying the ungodly line of Cain. Okay, so the ungodly line of Cain would be the daughters of men. All right. The second view is that the sons of God are human rulers or judges who are polygamous. I don't think that that has a lot of evidence for it, so I won't even be discussing that one. Uh, Number three, the sons of God are angels who have relations with women, and that's actually what I believe. It it sounds far-fetched, perhaps some, but I think that that actually has the best evidence for it. Let me, um, first of all, I'm going to weigh the evidence for number one and show you the strengths and show you the weaknesses. First of all, the strengths that the sons of God are, in fact, descendants of Seth who intermarried with Cain's descendants. The first strength is this, that the context seems to support that. In other words, in Genesis 4, 16 through 24, it refers to the ungodly line of Cain. Well, then right after that, you get to Genesis 4, 25 through 5, 32, and sure enough, it's all about, the, if you want to say, the godly line of Seth. Okay, So in other words, it would make sense then, in chapter 6, if, he, if the writer Moses built off of that and said, well, there's this intermarrying and it created a problem because you have the, the sons of God who are godly men who are dating or marrying these women who are turning them uh, to serve false gods. And in fact, we see some evidence of similar language with Israelites, with the Israelites and their dealings with the pagan nations. So for instance, in Deuteronomy 14.1, the Lord warns the Israelites not to go after the pagan nations and do what they do. He says, you are the sons of the Lord your God. You shall not cut yourselves nor shave your forehead for the sake of the dead. And so you can see this is a similar expression, although not identical, to the B'nai Ha Elohim. Okay, and I'll be showing you that in a minute. 
but yet it's it's similar. Okay, and then we also see this notion about these daughters of the pagans turning the sons away from godly living. Exodus thirty four sixteen, Yahweh says, and you might take some of his daughters for your sons, that is, of the Canaanites, and his daughters might play the harlot with their gods and cause your sons also to play the harlot with their gods. So we see similar language that sometimes the Israelites are called the son of Yahweh, your God. But the major weakness to this view, there's two major weaknesses. The first one is, and by the way, do you see that little mark up here? That's supposed to be a hyphen. And for some reason, my computer won't put it here. But it's supposed to be right here. But this is bene, literally sons. And this is the definite article, sons of God. So with the definite article, you would say the sons of God. Okay? So that actual expression is not found in any of these passages, but it is found in the passage we're looking at, Genesis 6, uh, 1, or 6, uh, 3, rather. And it's used three other times outside of Genesis 6, namely Job 1, 6, Job 2, 1, Job 38, 7. And every time it's referring to angels. And in fact, very similar expressions are used elsewhere. I'll show you in the next slide. And it always refers to angels. The other problem and weakness for this view that we're looking at right now is that you're going to see in Jude 5 through 7, we seem to have a divine interpretation or an infallible one because it's scripture. I think Jude 5 through 7 clearly proves the angelic interpretation. Okay, and so I'll lay that out for you now. So here are the strengths that, in fact, the sons of God are angels who had relations with women. As odd as that may sound, that, I think, is what is actually occurring here. First of all, again, Deuteronomy 32.8 Job 1.6, uh, and by the way, let me just stop talking about Deuteronomy 32.8 real quick. If you read in your Bibles, in fact, um, let me just read it to you because your versions will say the same thing if you don't have time to flip to it, but I just turned my Bible open to it. Deuteronomy 32.8 says this. It says, When the Most High divided their inheritance to the nations, when he separated the sons of man, he set the boundaries of the peoples according to the number of the children of Israel, where it says the number of the children of Israel, there's very, very good evidence that it would be better translated the sons of God. And we have evidence of that, in fact, on our reference links at TwinCityFellowship.com. Under the reference links, there's a Dr. Michael Heiser who writes a whole article about the fact the Septuagint, that is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, is probably original. In the Masoretic text, somewhere along the line, a scribe, did not like the implication that perhaps polytheism was being taught, and he changed it. Okay, So the best evidence is that the best rendering there is the sons of God. So I just want to point that out in case you look at Deuteronomy 32.8 and you say, well, where is the sons of God in here? That's where it comes from. So, And I'll talk a little bit more about that passage here in a few slides. But Deuteronomy 32.8 then is the sons of God. Job 1.6, Job 2.1, Job 38.7, all these psalms here, Daniel 3.25, all have variations. They may have um, a little different, but it's all the sons of God, and they're all referring to angels, except perhaps Daniel 3.25, which may be, in fact, a theophany. But if it was, it would be the angel of the Lord. So in a Hebrew mindset, of course, that would be God, um, but yet it would be an angel. Okay, So it would fit in some sense in that category would be the idea. Um, now, the New Te- this is what blows it out of the water for me, is that the New Testament seems to give an angelic interpretation to the passage. Let me read to you Jude 5 through 7. I'll make some comments. Jude writes this. He says, Now I desire to remind you, though you know all things once for all, 
that the Lord, after saving a people, people out of the land of Egypt, obviously the Exodus, subsequently destroyed those who did not believe. And angels who did not keep their own domain but abandoned their proper abode, and that I think is what he's referring to right there is Genesis 6, what we just read. He has kept in eternal bonds under darkness for the judgment of the great day. Now here we come to a term, hos, just as, in other words, in the same way, Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them, since they in the same way, um, that's the term ha, hamoyas, and that means literally um, identical or of the same kind, as these indulged in gross immorality and went after strange flesh, are exhibited as an example in undergoing the punishment of eternal fire. And so, again, this passage here is very devastating, and particularly because the angels is the referent to the these. These is, comes from the Greek tutois, and that is masculine. Why is that important? Well, when you see the term these, in other words, it says, since they in the same way as these indulged in gross immorality, what we want to know is what is the referent to these? Is it the cities? Well, it can't be the cities because that's feminine. So this pronoun has to be referring, the only thing it can be referring to is the angels because that's masculine. Okay? So in other words, just as these angels uh, did what they did, uh, these indulged in gross immorality and went after strange flesh. So in other words, in Sodom and Gomorrah, you have men that go after angels. And it seems to be this idea that angels and men and women can somehow have relations with one another. In the same way, these people were going, um, having wicked um, relations, and the same thing applies to the angels in Genesis 6. And so I think we have an infallible interpretation that Genesis 6 is about angels having relations with women. I think that's the only thing that we can conclude from that. Also, um, the same concept is taught in 1 Peter 3:19 through 20 and 2 Peter 2:4, namely that we have angelic beings that are actually held under bondage or under chains until the day of judgment. Okay? All right. So with that, I think that the best uh, view is that the sons of God are angels who had relations with women. Now, what I want to do now is talk about and explain why God must send the flood. But what I'm going to do is I'm going to talk about, remember our discourse markers? We're actually going to put those to use this evening. And what I want to do is use them to decide where does Genesis 6, 4 through 5 fit in. Scholars who deny that the sons of God are angels who cohabitated with women, what they will say is that 6, 4 through 5 should go with the flood account or the the descendants of Noah. In other words, they'll go with 6, 9 onward. What I'm going to make the case is, no, Genesis 6, 4 through 5 should go with what we just read, Genesis 6, 1 through 3. So let me read the passage, and I'll show you why I believe it goes with uh, the sons of God. Genesis 6, 4 through 5 says, The Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward when the sons of God came into the daughters of men. Right there is a great clue. So this goes with Genesis 6, 1 through 3. And they bore children to them. Those were the mighty men who were of old, men of renown. Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Okay. Now why does it matter if this goes with 6, 1 through 3? or if it goes with the descendants of Noah starting in 6.9. 
Because the following verses, notice what it says in Genesis 6, 6 through 7. It says, And the Lord was sorry that he had made man on earth. So the Lord said, I will destroy man whom I have created. There's something about the wickedness. Um, and, and notice it says here, it's a very important point. It says that every intent of the thoughts of his heart, that is man, was only evil continually. Um, you and I believe as evangelicals the doctrine of total depravity. That means every aspect of a man or a woman is affected by sin, but we don't accept utter depravity. Utter depravity means that people are absolutely as wicked as possible, and that's all they do is sin at all times. What's interesting is it seems to me, perhaps at this time, they're to a point where they're wicked continuously. That's what it says. Okay, So there's something about these people going after these sons of God and the sons of God going after them, that is the angels, where instead of worshiping Yahweh, they are so into idolatry, so into divination, that they are completely given over to wickedness. And so that the only result then is that God must wipe them out with the flood and therefore it necessitates that he must eventually create a new humanity who's going to be different. And so the evidence that 6, 4 through 5 goes with the sons of God, first of all, the context, but remember our, our structure, uh, discourse markers, remember the um, asyndetic clauses that we talked about? That's where you don't have a vav. What's interesting is in Genesis 5, 2, you have an asyndetic clause, and those are, that's the genealogy of Adam, and it goes all the way to 6, 3. And you have vobs that carry it forward. And they did this, and they did this, and -and so-and-so begot so-and-so. Well, when you come to this passage right here, notice there's no and. There's an asyndetic clause. So remember, what are our options? Well, when you come to an asyndetic clause, it's either starting a brand new section, right, or it's appositional, further explaining what had happened prior. Well, being that the context says when the sons of God came in, the daughters of men, that's an indication that it goes with what was previous. And so this would be an appositional clause or appositional um, paragraph, further explaining. So what God wants us to realize is he's explaining, first of all, where these Nephilim came from. The term Nephilim literally means fallen one in Hebrew. The Septuagint, however, translates in Numbers 13.33, this term Nephilim, as a giant, okay? And so most scholars hold to the notion that these giants, for instance, Goliath, um, he would have been a descendant, perhaps, of one of these Nephilim, okay? So you have these this superior, I hate to use the term, but it's a bastard race between angels and humans, and they do perverse and evil and wicked, so much so that God wants to wipe them out from the land of Canaan. And so I think this is perhaps answering where the Nephilim came from and why it is that God has no alternative but to destroy them. And so therefore it goes with 6, 1 through 3. Okay? Now let's move on. Let me give you a summary slide. And what I want to do with the summary slide is I want to show you how God's governing and show you how it points to the need for Abraham, the Messiah, and a new people that he'll eventually reign with Christ, even in the millennial kingdom. Um, pre-flood, how does God rule? Well, he rules directly. We have evidence of this. Genesis 3.8, um, Adam and Eve heard the sound of the Lord in the cool of the day, didn't they? Okay, they heard him. Now, in what sense did they hear it? Um, I don't know. But it seems that it's more direct um, than you and I have today. This isn't... Um, you know, having something in your heart, this is, they're actually hearing something. Uh, 
Yeah, walking in the garden. In fact, the cool of the um, the garden is, in fact, better rendered as wind. Okay, certainly not teaching any pantheism or panentheism, but the idea is that they they actually have contact with God. Uh, Genesis 3:24, you have this cherubim who's actually an angel with a flaming sword, and he keeps men and women from getting access to the tree of the knowledge of good, and, or I'm sorry, the tree of life, so they can't have eternal life and separation from God eternally. Um, so perhaps that was tangible. Perhaps these people could actually see that. Genesis 4, uh, 15, Cain has a mark of Yahweh for protection. Um, so who's protecting Cain? Who's governing and um, making sure that nothing happens to him? Yahweh himself seems to be. Genesis 4, 16, Cain went out from the presence, again, the face of Yahweh, indicating that he went out from this divine presence, uh, sort of a theophany like you would have in the temple. So then what happens is in uh, Genesis 6, we have this angelic cohabitation. God says, my spirit shall not remain, I think is the best way of understanding it, with man forever. His days shall be 120 years. And so the flood comes, and he wipes out everybody except Noah's family. Now, after the flood, it's very interesting because now God rules through men. Genesis 9, 6, it says, uh, if a man sheds a man's blood, so by man shall his blood be shed. And so now it changes. God will no longer directly rule them. He uses mediators in a sense. Um, Genesis 11.4. Remember in Genesis 11.4, the people are dispersed, but they don't go all over the world. They come to the plains of Shinar, which is uh, in Babylon. And in Genesis 11.4, they say, let us make a name not for Yahweh, but for ourselves. Well, God is incensed with that, of course. He should be. He needs to glorify only himself. And so he confuses their language, and, and they start to disperse. Now, what's interesting is when you get to Genesis 11.8 and Deuteronomy 32.8, the connection here is that when God disperses the nations in Genesis 11.8, it says again in Deuteronomy 32.8, referencing that, it says, when the Most High divided their inheritance, when he separated the sons of man, he set the boundaries of the peoples according to, the, again, the numbers of the children of God. So what's interesting is the idea is that God takes all of the nations, because of their wickedness, he gives them as an inheritance to the demons. That is the sons of God. Okay, that is the fallen angels. And so he gives them to them, and so there's 70 of them apparently. And so he gives all of the nations under the sons of God, and then he says in Deuteronomy 32.9 that Israel alone is going to be his inheritance. And so obviously it becomes problematic when Israel goes after the host of heaven. In fact, they're indicted for doing so in Acts 7:42 through 43. Okay? So what you have, friends, is this rule where what we see is one day the Messiah is going to rule on earth. And everyone who is trusted in him will be part of this new people that God starts in Abraham. And so if you're not in Christ, if you don't have faith in him, if you don't follow the narrow way, you're under the host of heaven. You're in one of their nations. You're in their league. You're in their dungeon, so to speak. Okay? And so we see, again, the fact that one day God will reign. And sure enough, in Revelation chapter 20 through 21, we see that God does that. We have the millennial kingdom and then the eternal states. Okay, now, let me show you the reason for the conquest of Canaan. In Genesis 9, we start this, I think it's a theological, I think God is giving us the theological reason why Canaan is going to be judged so that every man, woman, and child should be killed and that Israel is given that land and more preferably 
the Messiah is given that land forever. Okay? So in Genesis 9, 21 through 24, talking about Noah, this is after the flood, it says, He drank of the wine and became drunk and uncovered himself inside his tent. Very interesting, it says, Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. But Shem and Japheth took a garment and laid it upon both their shoulders and walked backward and covered the nakedness of their father, and their faces were turned away so that they did not see their father's nakedness. When Noah awoke from his wine, he knew what his youngest son had done to him. Notice, friends, it makes a very clear point to say Ham, the father of Canaan. Why doesn't it say Shem, the father of so-and-so, and Japheth, the father of so-and-so? There's a point to that. And I think under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, again, Moses is trying to explain to us, and, and I'm going to build this case, that Canaan is being given over for a reason. And if you dig into the scriptures, what's interesting is the um, people that inhabited the land of Canaan, they went after the host of heaven in such an egregious fashion that not only did they fall into the same sexual sin that Ham did, but they became so vile that they actually sacrificed their own children to Moloch, okay, this wicked god of the Baal cult. And this, this sacrificing of the children was so that they may prosper. And I think about the parallels today in America and around the world where people, yeah, they don't call it Baal, they don't call it Asher, they won't call it Moloch, but they're sacrificing their children too to the gods of prosperity. Why? Because they're serving the host of heaven. It's the same battle, it just has different names. That's all. They sacrifice their children. Why? Because they're under the demons. And so the only way not to be under the demons is to believe the gospel, to be regenerate, to have the Holy Spirit so that you think differently. Right? So that you understand that little babies have worth, that they're human, right? And so those obviously who don't feel that way and understand that, they're under the host of heaven. But that's why they're so wicked, and I think that's the case that Moses is uh, bringing up. So now, let me get further along then in Genesis 9:25 through 27. It says, So he said, This is Noah then, he's giving this curse. He said, Cursed be Canaan. A servant of servants he shall be to his brothers. He also said, Blessed be Yahweh, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth and let him dwell in the tents of Shem and let Canaan be his servant. Now, I'm going to come back to this very passage, and we're going to exegete it very carefully. But let me ask a question I think that needs to be answered. Why curse Canaan? Why is the curse thrown upon Canaan when, in fact, it's Ham that is doing the wicked things? Um, in, in this passage. Well, let me give you three reasons. The, the first, I think number one and number three are the most going for them. Number one, God had already blessed Noah and his sons. So certainly Noah, therefore he can't curse what God has blessed. So he can't curse Ham, and so he does it to his descendant. Okay, that may have some merit. Uh, Noah wishes Ham's youngest son to bring disrepute upon Ham, just as Ham, uh, that is Noah's youngest, did to him. My mom used to say this, I hope you have children just as bad as you are. <laughs> it's that kind of effect, right? Um, I shouldn't maybe say that. Uh, my mom wasn't mean, by the way, but I was a bad kid. So um, the, the other option, I think this is the best one, is this, that Noah's sons personify and embody the actions of their descendants. That is, the Canaanites were known for their sexually evil practices. Turn with me, if you will. Before I go, the, um, go to Leviticus 18, and while you're turning there, um, 
this also has a lot going for number three because think of the idea that we talked about with the seed, the one and the many. There's this idea in the people's minds of the ancient Near East, especially the Hebrews, of corporate solidarity. What the one does, often the many will do, and what the many do is often represented by the head or the federal headship of the one. So there's this one and the many. So the idea then would be that the Canaanites end up acting out the very sins that their grandpa did, so to speak, Ham. And sure enough, we see that's exactly what happened. So Leviticus 18.3, see if I mark that. Oh, I did mark it. That was good. Uh, Leviticus 18.3 says, According to the doings of the land of Egypt, by the way, they were descendants of Ham as well. Where you dwelt, you shall not do. And according to the doings of the land of Canaan, where I am bringing you, you shall not do, nor shall you walk in their ordinances. Now skip down uh, to verse 6. It says, None of you shall approach anyone who is near of kin to him to uncover his nakedness. Well, that's exactly what Ham did, isn't it? Okay, so the Canaanites end up engaging in these very sins that Ham did. Now go further. And if you go to uh, Leviticus 18, um, start in verse 20, it says, Moreover, you shall not lie carnally with your neighbor's wife to defile yourself with her, and you shall not let any of your descendants, remember seed, pass through the fire to Molech, nor shall you profane the name of, of your God, I am Yahweh. Okay, so there they, uh, God is strictly commanding them not to let their children be sacrificed to this God, Molech. Who is Molech? Well, it's the God that... If you're going to take one that represents the host of heaven, he's it. Okay? And the Canaanites were worshiping. Why? Because they went in after the angels. They were sold out to divination. They weren't content to be uh, serving the one true living God. They went into idolatry and divination, and they went to uh, sacrifice their children to Moloch. So the point is, is the Canaanites end up engaging in this very wicked behavior that their their relative Ham did. Okay? And so that's why this curse is given. Now, what I'm going to do is I also want to prove to you in this verse that the land of Canaan is given to the Messiah and that the Messiah is going to come from the descendants of Shem. I want you to notice something very interesting. Notice it highlighted in blue. This whole phrase in blue is about Yahweh. It's about the Lord. By the way, I, I use the term Yahweh because I like to use his name um, because it means something. Okay, uh, But anytime you see Lord all caps, most of you probably know that, but that's Yahweh. And I like to use his name. Um, because I, I think it's appropriate. Uh, the, the Hebrews, of course, believe that if you, you can't say his name because they've distorted, obviously, the commandment that says, do not take his name in vain. But that's not what it's referring to. But anyway, notice in blue, it says, blessed be Yahweh, the God of Shem. Well, the God of Shem, who is that? Well, it's, it's Yahweh. And so this whole phrase in blue is one person. It's about the Lord. It's about Yahweh. So when it says, and let Canaan be his servant, the question we have to ask is, will Canaan serve Yahweh or Shem? Well, it has to be Yahweh. See, a lot of people say, well, his servant, he's going to be serving Shem, because that's the last name listed. But this whole phrase isn't about Shem. It's about the God of Shem. That's one person. It's Yahweh. And so when it says, and let Canaan be his servant, Canaan is going to be serving not Shem, but Yahweh. Okay? The next question is, is the hymn referring to Yahweh or Japheth? Notice it says, may God enlarge Japheth, and let him dwell in the tents of Shem. Well, who is the him? Is the him God, or is the him Japheth? Well, there's several reasons why we should say it's God. First of all, this is Hebrew poetry. And typically in Hebrew poetry, what you'll have is the previous subject 
from a previous clause will be what's alluded to as the subject in the next clause. Okay? And that's exactly what we have here. And let him dwell in the tents of Shem. There's another reason, however. Notice this is Hebrew poetry, and you have two refrains. The refrain is, and let Canaan be his servant. And we said, well, Canaan is actually serving Yahweh. Therefore, it's very likely that this last refrain where it says, and let Canaan be his servant, Canaan is also serving Yahweh there. It has the same meaning. Are you with me? Okay. So the him is probably Yahweh. So when it says, may God enlarge Japheth and let him dwell in the tents of Shem, the him is God. God will one day dwell in the tents of Shem. Further proof of this is by asking the question, how is Shem blessed? Notice Japheth is blessed. Right, It says, may God enlarge Japheth. But notice it would go on to say, and let him, if this, is, if this him is Japheth, then Japheth is dwelling in the tents of Shem. And that's not a blessing, it's a curse. Why is it a curse? Well, because it would be a symbol of the posterity of Shem being diminished and Japheth overtaking him. And so, again, Japheth dwelling in Shem's tents would not be a blessing on Shem at all. So now you have Japheth being blessed and not Shem. But Shem would be blessed if, in fact, God ends up dwelling with him. And I think that's exactly what's being stated here. Yahweh will dwell in the tents of Shem, and Canaan will be his servant. That's what's being stated. In fact, this term, va-yishkon, this last part, this is, a, by the way, we have a vav here. This would be an and. And this is yiktol, so it would be and he will, so it's more than likely future tense. But notice where it starts with this, uh, looks like a menorah almost, like a three-prong deal. That is shekan in its original form. And that sounds like shekinah, doesn't it? That's where you get the dwelling presence of God, shekinah, the shekinah glory. That's the same term, okay? So he's going to be dwelling in the tents of Shem. So the point of this whole thing is that Canaan is going to be the servant of Yahweh. And you're going to see when we get to Genesis 12, that is why who owns the land of Israel? Yes, the Israelites, but first and foremost, it's Yahweh himself. It's the Messiah. And so when somebody messes with the land, who are they messing with? They're not just messing with the Israelites. They're messing with Jesus. They're messing with the Messiah. So in Genesis 12, we come then to God's new people. In verses 1 through 7, we and I had to skip, I obviously, Genesis 11, which is important, but... Um, Genesis 12, 1 through 7, it says, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you, and I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great. And so you shall be a blessing, and I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. Abram took Sarah, his wife, and Lot, his nephew, and all their possessions. It's very interesting. Notice it says, now the Canaanite was then in the land. Okay, the Lord appeared to Abram and said, to your descendants I will give, to this, I will give this land. So he built an altar there to the Lord who had appeared to him. Now, notice all the blessings. He's going to be a great nation. He's going to have salvation. Abraham is going to be the giver of salvation. He is going to, um, he is going to be protected. Notice it says, I will bless those who bless thee and curse those who curse thee. He is going to be salvation to all the nations. Notice it says, and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. That is the promise that this messianic salvation wasn't just for the Jews originally. It was always for the Gentiles as well. Okay, It was always for all the nations. 
Okay, and notice the promise of the messianic land. Very interesting. Why in the world does he bring this up here? Now the Canaanite was then in the land. Just out of the blue. Well, because in Genesis 9 that we just looked at, we were given the theological reason why Canaan was going to serve Yahweh and why the land was going to be given away. Because they're wretched sinners, so evil, where they were selling and murdering their children to Molech, weren't they? And so now we know that the Canaanite was going to serve who? It's going to serve Yahweh. And in fact, it says to your seed. Remember, descendants is Zerah, the collective noun. And according to Galatians 3.16, who is the seed? It's not the many. It's the one. It's Christ. Right? That's what Paul says. We have an infallible interpretation. So who is it then that owns the land of Canaan? That is the land of Israel. The Messiah does. It's the Messiah. He is the seed. And therefore, when people try to divide the land of Israel or they attack it at the end days, who are they actually messing with? They're messing with the Messiah. He owns the land. It's his. And we were given the theological reason why it was given to him and why all the Canaanites should have been wiped out. By the way, Canaanites, they are Ham and then Canaan. Canaan, there's many subgroups under name like Amorites and Jebusites and... um, Gig, you know, anyway, all, even the termites, right? As the joke goes, there's many ites, Amorites, and so forth that are under the Canaanites. So the Canaanites would be a larger group, and then Amorites would be a subgroup. Okay, so when you see the wickedness, wickedness of the Amorites, that's just another Canaanite. Okay, and that you'll see why that's important in Genesis 15. So when we come to Genesis 15 now, what I want to do is set up the issue. The issue is we have this promise in Genesis 12, but Abraham is getting old, Abram at the time, and he says, I don't have a child. I don't have a seed. What's up with that, right? And he's asking the question, "My only, the only heir I have is Eliezer of Damascus. And so it's, um, Genesis 15, 1 through 3, it says, After these things, the word of Yahweh came to Abram in a vision, saying, Do not fear, Abram. I am a shield to you. Your reward shall be very great. Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? Since I am childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abraham said, Since you have given no offspring, again, literally it's Zerah, it's seed. You've given no seed to me. One born in my house is my heir. Okay, now look at Yahweh's response. It says, Then behold, the word of the Lord came to him, saying, This man, that is Eliezer, will not be your heir, but one who will come forth from your own body, he shall be your heir. And he took him outside and said, Now look toward the heavens and count the stars if you are able to to count them. And he said to him, So shall your seed be. Then he believed in the Lord and he reckoned it to him as righteousness. And of course, this is the famous passage that Paul alludes to in Romans 4, demonstrating that salvation has always been by faith. Remember the question Paul asked in Romans 4 is, was that before circumcision or after? Well, certainly it's before circumcision. Circumcision doesn't come until Genesis 17. And so certainly it was by no works of the flesh that Abraham was justified. It was strictly by faith, wasn't it? Again, we have Zerah and Zerah here. So again, the idea of the one and the many is always tied up into these terms. So what's interesting in this account is you'll have Abraham asking the question, How do I know? And then God gives him an object lesson. You're going to see him do the same thing again. God is going to cut the covenant now. Notice Genesis 15, 8 through 10. Abraham, after he's justified, it says, He said, O Lord God, and by the way, this is Adonai Yahweh. 
you'll see this description in 2 Samuel 7 when David is recounting the blessings that God has given him. And why that's significant is because when David uses Adonai Yahweh, it recalls this Genesis 15 passage so that we know, or we have another clue, I should say, that David is in the promise or in the lineage of the promise of the seed. Okay, so he's what he's talking about in Second uh, Samuel seven is about the seed promise that we see here established in Genesis fifteen. So he says, "O Lord God, how may I know that I will possess it?" Now here comes the object lesson. Remember, the first object lesson was look at the stars. Now this is the second object lesson. So he said to him, "Bring bring me a three-year-old heifer, a three-year-old female goat, a three-year-old ram, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon." Then he brought all these to him and cut them in two and laid each half opposite the other, but he did not cut the birds. Now I'm going to describe how they cut a covenant in uh, um, two slides from now. But what I want to first show you is notice the animals. They're the heifer and all of these animals. Let me just start by saying it this way. The heifer, the female goat, the ram, the turtle dove, and the young pigeon, all of those animals, friends, end up making um, a large percentage of the Levitical priesthood's sacrifices, okay? So it's interesting. It's almost as if we have a foreshadowing of the Levitical sacrifices right here in Genesis 15. And I'm going to show you theologically, I think there may be a correspondence that we can glean from that. Let me explain. Notice you have a heifer. Now, what in the world is a heifer used for? Well, a red heifer is used in Numbers 19, 1 through 10, to clean those who are defiled if they come into contact with a dead body um, they will have what the what the priests would do is they would take water and they would mix it and I forget what all is in it if there was blood involved but they would have the ashes of the red heifer and they would make this concoction that they would have to make um, someone clean who had come in contact with a dead body otherwise they would defile the whole tabernacle of God and that's why today in Israel they're looking for a red heifer okay. But why is that important? What was God showing the people? He was showing them that he was so incredibly holy that they couldn't approach him in just any way. And so what's interesting is when we come to the New Testament, how do we become clean ultimately ceremonially? By faith in Christ. Okay, because he's clean. So we're, we're given his imputed cleanliness, as it were. But what's interesting is so you have this heifer. You have a female goat. That's a sin offering in Leviticus 4.28. You have a ram, which is a guilt offering in Leviticus 5, 6, or 7. You have the turtle dove and the pigeons. They're both burnt and guilt offerings. And the reason why you would have those is because some people, they couldn't afford a ram. They couldn't afford a goat. And so God made it available that even the poor could give an offering. In fact, sometimes it would be um, as small as, um, you know, rice cakes and, and meal and so forth that they would have. Or, uh, uh, bread cakes and so forth that they could give. Okay, But what I want you to see is all these animals make up the Levitical system. So what's interesting is, notice in Genesis 15, Abraham asked the question, how may I know? And what God does is he gives him an object lesson. Let's cut these animals. And what God is going to do is he alone will walk the blood path and he is going to carath breathe. He will cut the covenant. But the object lesson is the animals being cut. Well, when you come to the sacrificial system in Leviticus, think about the Hebrew who believed in Yahweh. He also, in a sense, is getting the same object lesson. How do I know that I have atonement? Well, he confesses his sins on the animal. He gives them to the Lord, and it's an object lesson. The animal is slain, and it foreshadows one day that the Messiah will come and do this. So, friends, the point is is that the Hebrew who was saved 
wasn't saved by putting the goat in the offering plate, right? He was saved by faith. That's why the writer of Hebrews in Hebrews 10.4 said the blood of bulls and goats could never take away or atone for sin. It never did. It was an object lesson. It foreshadowed what was to come. So the point is, again, Abraham says, how may I know? Cut the animals. Sacrificial system, how may I know? The Jews, every one of them that was saved, believed that one day Yahweh was going to provide salvation for them through the Messiah. That's what they believed. And that's why uh, Jesus could say in John 8, 56, uh, Abraham saw my day and he saw it and was glad. He rejoiced, right? And so, again, I think this gives us a clue what the sacrificial system is about. And we have more evidence in Isaiah chapter 1, 11. Listen to what the Lord says about these sacrifices. He rebukes Israel. He says, What are your multiplied sacrifices to me, says Yahweh? I have had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fed cattle, and I take no pleasure in the blood of bulls, lambs, or goats. Yahweh is saying to the people of God, If you think that you're going to be righteous in my sight because you put another goat in the offering plate and you're good for the week, stick them in your ear. That's what he's saying. Stick him in your ear because if you're going to approach me, it's by faith. Okay? So again, this is devastating against those who hold to any form of ritualism. And today we see the same thing. People are saying, I went to church, I'm good for a week. I went to communion, I'm good. I was baptized once. I went forward at a whatever altar call, right? God says, if you're not trusting in the Messiah, stick it in your ear. He's sick of religious uh, religiosity. He's sick of form. He's sick of um, all these different things that people do that are outside of faith in the Messiah. And so in Romans 10, 1 through 4, this is a very important point that Paul makes. He says, brethren, he's talking about Israel. He says, my heart's desire and my prayer to God for them is for their salvation. For I testify about them that they have a zeal for God, but not in accordance with knowledge. For not knowing about God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own. Up here, friends, what's listed in Isaiah 1, that's what Paul is talking about. This self-made righteousness, a homemade one. The Hebrews who went into the idea that if they put the goat in there in the offering plate for the week, that they could go out and live like the devil, that's a self-made righteousness. That's a homemade one, and it's one that God never gave them. And so that is what it means to establish their own righteousness. It says they did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God, for Christ is the end. And remember I talked about this term, I think, um, a few times ago. That term end literally means goal. It's telos. That's where we get the term teleological argument. Um, Teleological argument means that we see design, therefore there must be designer. So telos is the idea that there was a design or this was the end game. So it's not that it's, it's not so much, friends, that Christ abolishes the law, but as he says in Matthew 5, 17, he didn't come to abolish it, but to fulfill it. He came to fulfill, fill to the full the requirement of the law. So it's that he is the goal of the law. It's what the, in other words, it's what the law pointed to. The law kept pointing to Christ. It's pointing that way. It's pointing to Messiah. And so he is the end game of it. He's what it all pointed to. He was what it was all about. And that's what Paul is saying here. He says, for Christ is the end of the law. That is the goal of it for righteousness to everyone who believes. So the sacrificial system was never meant to save anyone. Now, did you, if you were a a believing uh, Hebrew of the day, you believed in Yahweh, in order to be obedient, did you have to do the sacrifices? Yes. But you were saved by faith. You and I are called 
to celebrate the Lord's Supper. First Corinthians 11, as often as you do it, which implies we'll do it, um, you do this in remembrance of me, right? So we're called to do those things, but we don't expect that because we did the ritual, we're saved. It's the same thing. So again, salvation has been the same yesterday, today, and forever. Now, let's continue onward. And what I want to talk about is how is it that they would cut this covenant? Well, I believe there's a lot of debate about this, but I believe that the way covenants were cut back then is these different tribes. If you had two tribes that were warring, you would take the animal, you would cut it in two, and then you would walk the blood path. And you would say, um, I would say to Dave, Dave, if I go against my word and my tribe, may what happened to these animals happen to me in sevenfold. And I would walk the blood. And then you would do the same thing. Well, what's so interesting here and what's so beautiful is that Abraham's asleep. And so who alone is putting themselves under potential curse? Uh, Yahweh is. And that's why it says in the book of Hebrews, because he could swear by no one greater, he swore the oath by himself. And so the creator of the universe puts himself under the potential curse that if I go against my word and the seed doesn't come from you, that is the Messiah eventually, may what happened to these filthy animals happen to me in sevenfold. I think that's how a person in the ancient Near East would have understood that covenant. It would be, um, you know, we have things in our day and age that if somebody a thousand years or two thousand years from now came and saw, they just won't understand. People painting their face up and going to a football game, right? They won't understand that. But that's, that's the deal. That was part of their culture then. So let's continue. Verses 12 through 21, it says, Now when the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abram, and behold, terror and great darkness fell upon him. God said to Abram, Know for certain, not, you know, you may or may not know, know for certain that your descendants, that is your seed, will be strangers in a land that is not theirs, where they will be enslaved and oppressed 400 years. By the way, I think 400 years is just a round number. It's like if, if somebody, because remember we see later in the scriptures that it's 430 years. Now how do we resolve that? Is that a contradiction? 400 years here, 430 years elsewhere. I don't think it's a contradiction at all. If someone were to ask me how much money I made or you, let's say you made 30000 a year, and somebody said, well, um, or they ask you, and they, you make 30000 a year, and you, uh, or let's just say you say 30000 a year, but in fact you made $30,000 in maybe, or 30000 Seven, right? You made seven extra dollars. Is somebody going to say you're a liar? No, you're using a round number. And so the same thing applies here. Um, God uses phenomenological language, and he uses language that refers to round numbers at times. Okay? That's how I would understand, unless somebody has something better. But he says, but I will judge the nation whom they will serve, and afterward they will come out with many possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You will be buried at a good old age. Then in the fourth generation, they will return here for the iniquity of the Amorite. Now remember, who's the Amorite? They're a descendant of Canaan. And what did Canaan do? He went after the host of heaven, and so did the Amorites. The Amorites were sacrificing their children to Molech. So he's waiting for their iniquity to fill up. The Amorite is not yet complete. It says, It came about when the sun had set that it was very dark, and behold, there appeared a smoking oven. So now here's the theophany. This is the actual manifestation uh, presence of God here a smoking oven and a flaming torch which passed between these pieces. On that day, Yahweh made a covenant. Literally, he cut a covenant. It's karath bereath. He cut the covenant with Abram saying, to your seed I have given this land. So who cuts the covenant but Yahweh alone? God does. He walks the blood path. When we get to Matthew 26, Jesus says this is the blood of the covenant which is poured out for the remission of many. And who cuts the covenant, the new covenant? Jesus alone does. None of us went with him. 
Okay? And so the covenant is established unilaterally by God himself. Now, what I want to show you is the distinction between that and Genesis 17, where now we have circumcision. And I want to show you how circumcision, I think, should be understood by us. And it's, under, it's important to realize, again, God unilaterally cut the covenant in Genesis 15. But when we come to Genesis 17 now, 2 through 5, Yahweh says this to Abram. He says, And I will establish my covenant between me and you, and I will multiply you exceedingly. Abraham fell on his face, and God talked with him, saying, As for me, behold, my covenant is with you, and you will be the father of a multitude of nations, no longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be called Abraham. For I will make you the father of a multitude of nations. So instead of Abram, which is um, a mighty father, something to that effect, now he's going to be the father of many nations. Sometimes some people think it's a revered father, something to that effect. Okay. Now what I want to show you here is that this term establish, the term establish actually is a term that it's from Nathan. Just think of the per- person Nathan, if you know anybody that's named Nathan. Nathan actually means to give. And the implication there is that God is establishing, or you might say that he's giving it by grace, this covenant. And so it's different than Abraham cutting the covenant because God already did that. It's already been unilaterally given. What he's doing now is he is by grace giving the covenant that he's already cut to Abraham, okay? And so that term here, we, again, we have another um, uh, vav here, don't we? So it would be an and, okay? And so Nathan is right here, and so that he gives his covenant by grace. Now, the other thing here I want you to see is, notice it says here, uh, varithi, okay? And that is varith, which is covenant, but the ending right here, the E ending, that's my covenant, so whose covenant is it? Is it really the Abrahamic covenant? I've actually mistitled my whole presentation. No, it's actually his covenant. It's Yahweh's covenant. Okay? In other words, he's giving the covenant to Abraham. This language is important. God cut the covenant. Now he gives it by grace to Abraham. These are important clues, I think. Genesis 15:18. Notice the difference. Here, karath, which means cut, bayom, uh, in that day, uh, this is that, so it's in that day, Yahweh, this is the term, by the way, that's Yahweh's name right there. And in fact, if you read it in the Masoretic text, in the Hebrew text, they have something called what is, what is written, what is read. Okay? So they would never say that. They actually have Adonai every time Yahweh's there. Okay? But that's actually Yahweh's name. Okay? So it's Yahweh cuts uh, with Abraham the covenant. Okay, so the point is that God cuts the covenant in Genesis 15, but now he's giving it by grace to to Abraham. Okay, he's establishing it with him. So what does Abraham do? Then Abraham is cutting the symbol of the covenant. Um, Genesis 17, 2, 7, and 11, the Lord continues. He says, I will establish, again, Nathan, giving it by grace, my covenant between me and you, and I will multiply you exceedingly. I will, Nathan, my covenant between me and you, and your seed after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant. How long is everlasting? Well, it's forever. And you shall circumcise in the flesh of your foreskin, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. Now, this is a very important term, this term sign. It comes from oath in Hebrew. And notice a sign is a symbol, or I should say a sign symbolizes 
a greater reality. So my, the point being here, friends, is that Abraham isn't doing anything other than he's being cut to not establish the covenant, but he's really being cut as a symbol of the covenant that's already there. Do you see the distinction? And so what's interesting then to me is that God cuts the covenant, Abraham cuts the symbol of the covenant, which is the seed promise. So the point is the seed, remember the one and the many, who's going to come from Abraham? The Messiah. Okay, and how does it come about? Well, through the relations of a man and a woman. And so Abraham is going to be cut, right, in order so that you and I know that one day Messiah is coming from him. It's a constant reminder to all Israelites that one day from our lineage is coming the Messiah. But that isn't the covenant. It's a sign, oath. It's a sign of the covenant, okay? Because God already cut the covenant. He'd already established it, and he did it unilaterally. He did it unilaterally. So now, when we come to the new covenant, Christ cuts the covenant again. And you and I did nothing, okay? Christ alone did it. Matthew 26, 28, again, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. And so the Abrahamic covenant and the new covenant are cut alone by God, and yet the symbol of the covenant, that is the Abrahamic covenant, was circumcision. So the point is, friends, once the reality comes, that is Messiah is on the scene, you no longer need circumcision. Why? Because what it had been symbolizing was the seed. And so once the seed is there, you don't have to be cut anymore. Now what we are is we're circumcised in the heart so that we may believe. And so circumcision is changed. It's always forever circumcision, but it's a different circumcision because what it pointed to will be with us forever. So again, it's not that circumcision is abolished. In a sense, it's it's um, fulfilled. It's filled to the full, just like the law. Okay, now again, don't get me wrong, we don't have to be cut, but the idea is that the Messiah is the eternally cut one on our behalf, and he will live forevermore. And so... Um, that, that's how I view it. So I think that helps us understand, friends, what was circumcision all about? Well, it was a sign of the covenant. It's, it symbolized a greater reality. If someone came to you and they said, um, show me your family, and you showed them a picture, you grabbed your wallet and you pulled out a picture, and they said, your, your family's a picture? You would say, no, of course not. This is a picture of my family. That's what circumcision is. It's not the covenant. It's a picture of the covenant. It's a sign. It's a symbol. And that's why circumcision when the, the real, the reality comes on the scene, it's done away with in, in that sense. Okay, now um, we see that Abraham travels to a place called Chosen by Yahweh, that is Mount Moriah. Genesis 22, the reason I want to show you this, Genesis 22, remember, uh, in the book of James, faith without works is dead. He borrows from Genesis 22. Paul borrows in Romans 4 from Genesis 15, showing that faith... Um, you know, that in Abraham believed God, it was credited in his righteousness, that salvation has always been by faith. Is James and Paul teaching two different things? No. All James' point is if you really believe, you act on it. That's his whole point. And so because Abraham really believed the promises of Yahweh, he acts on it in Genesis 22. And so he's on the way to Mount Moriah because God has said that he has to kill his son, his only son. Um, Yahweh says, he said, take now your son, your only son. I think that's important. It's reiterated several times whom you love, Isaac, and go to the land of Moriah. Moriah means literally chosen by Yahweh. And offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains, of which I will tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning and saddled his donkey and took two of the young men of his young men with him and Isaac his son. And he split wood for the burnt offering and arose 
and went to the place of which God had told him. Genesis 22, 4 through 5, it says, notice, on the third day, so Abraham here had been traveling for three days, obviously, so in his mind, because the living God had told him to kill his son, his son in his mind has been dead for three days, isn't he? So it says, Abraham raised his eyes and saw the place from a distance. Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey, and the lad will go over there, and we will worship and return to you. Now notice this term, we, it's a third-person uh, common uh, plural pronoun in Hebrew. And this is indication, I believe, of the belief in the resurrection. Okay, remember in Hebrews 11:19, I'll show you that passage at the very end. It says that Abraham even believed in the resurrection. And you say, where in the world do you have evidence in the Old Testament that Abraham believed in the resurrection? Well, I think we see it here. We're going to go over... Uh, in sacrifice, and what's going to happen when they sacrifice? Well, Isaac, he's done, right? Okay, but he says, we will worship and return to you. That plural pronoun is significant because Abraham's saying, we're both coming back. And so the writer of Hebrews picks up on that and says he even believes in the resurrection. So you and I believe in the resurrection? Well, so did Abraham. Okay, that's the idea. Um, Genesis 22, 6 through 8, it says, Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. I'll never forget... Um, um, Ryan Habanaugh pointing out that who else had wood on their back? Maybe most of you know, but isn't that interesting? Now, who else has wood? Well, Christ went up with wood on his back, and so does Isaac, doesn't he? This is, and he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So the two of them walked on together. Isaac spoke to Abraham, his father, and said, My father, and he said, Here I am, my son. And he said, Behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb? Now, remember the term lamb. Keep that in your mind for the burnt offering. Abraham said, God will provide for himself, the lamb, for the burnt offering, my son. So the two of them walked on together. The term lamb comes from seh. That's all you'd say, just seh. It's a, this is a scene in a, um, with a little, what's called a seg hole. It's a eh. And so just seh, that's a lamb. Okay, now I'm going to show you the distinction between that and the ram here in a minute. Genesis 22:10 and 12 through 13, it says, So Abraham stretched out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. And then here's the angel of the Lord interceding. Okay, I had to try to fit it all on one slide. He said, Do not stretch out your hand against the lad and do nothing to him, for now I know that you fear God, since you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. So eventually one day, of course, God is not going to withhold his son, his only son, for us, right? Then Abraham raised his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him a ram, not a lamb, but a ram caught in the thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered him up for a burnt offering in the place of his sons. We have the idea of substitution. So the name for ram is Alil or Ail. Okay, so the idea of Ail versus Seth. So the point is, is the lamb never did come here, did it? The ram was caught. And so we're left in a sort, if you're really a cautious reader, you're realizing that, well, the lamb never did materialize, it was a ram. But the idea then is you're set up for, well, one day the lamb will come. Okay? And where will they come? He's coming to Mount Moriah. He's coming to a place that's called Yahweh will provide. Abraham ends up calling the place Yahweh will provide. And sure enough, 2,000 years later, at that very spot, the Messiah is in fact given by God as our atonement. So it's a beautiful thing. Abraham travels with his son, and for three days he thinks he's dead. So God's son is dead for three days. He puts wood on his back, just like the son went up the mount with wood on his back. 
um, there's all these things that really are just too perfect to really um, make up, right? I mean, it just shows the divinity of the scriptures. And then finally, I love the question, what happened to the lamb, right? Well, of course, the idea that the ram was here means that the lamb one day is coming. So all of that is tied in to Genesis 22. And so what this shows us, friends, is that salvation has always been by faith in Christ. Again, John 8, 56, Jesus says, Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. And so the idea here is that in Genesis 15, Abraham really believed that the seed would come from him. He believed in Messiah. And in Genesis 22, 5, he says, You stay here. Me and the lad are going up to sacrifice, but we will return. Well, he had to kill his son, so he even believed in the resurrection. And that's exactly the point of the writer of Hebrews. Hebrews 11, 17 through 19 says, By faith Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises was offering up his only begotten son. It was he to whom it was said in Isaac, Your seed shall be called. He considered that God is able to raise people even back from the dead, from which he also received him back as a type. So the point is, friends, is when Jesus says, Abraham saw my day and was glad, the Old Testament saints look forward to the cross and to Christ, and the New Testament saints look back, but it's one cross, one Christ, one salvation, one resurrection. It's the seed promise, isn't it? And so salvation, again, yesterday, today, and forever has always been the same. Um, let me just go through a points on the, I want to tie now the covenants together. And I'm going to just show you how the covenants fit together a little bit here. And this is our, I think this is the last slide. Galatians 3.17, Paul writes this. He says, what I am saying is this. The law, which came 430 years later. Now remember, in Genesis 15, it was a rounded number. Just You're going to be here 400 years. But 430 years later does not invalidate a covenant previously ratified by God so as to nullify the promise. Right? For if the inheritance is based on law, it is no longer based on a promise. But God has granted it to Abraham by means of a promise. So the point is the promise came 430 years before the law ever came. And so the law was never designed, friends, to save anyone. And in fact, if you believe that the law could save you, first of all, you'd have to obey it perfectly but then you're engaged in a self-made, homemade righteousness, a righteousness that never existed. And that's why Paul goes on to say in Galatians 3, 23 through 24, but before faith came, we were kept under guard by the law, kept for the faith which would afterward be revealed. Therefore the law was our tutor to bring us to Christ that we might be justified by faith. In the New Testament times, this sort of tutor would be one who would make sure the school children are brought and are taught and are fed for by the wealthy landowner, by the wealthy family. And so the image there that Paul is using is that this law was a tutor that made sure you and I came to the conclusion that you and I could never justify ourselves. And it drove us to the cross. It drove us to the Messiah. And so Paul is saying, therefore, that the law was never salvation. It never was used in that way. It was always used as a tutor. So you think about in 1835, more than likely, if we're doing our math correctly, That would have been the time probably around the Abrahamic covenant. And that's unilateral. God alone gives it. In 1405, you have a bilateral covenant. That is the Mosaic covenant. Okay, And then the new covenant, again, is unilateral. The Abrahamic covenant was cut by God alone. So was the new covenant. And so in a sense, the Abrahamic covenant reaches over and is established by the new covenant. 
And it is the eternal covenant that by faith in Christ you and I are a part of. It's a covenant that never goes away. And interesting, if you put it on the timeline, think about circumcision. Circumcision then, oh, I'm sorry, I forgot this one, tutor. So the law here is a tutor, and it pointed us to the establishment of the new covenant by Christ. And if you think about, again, circumcision, I don't know if you can read that, it's pretty small, but circumcision is about the seed promised. And it carries forth, that is circumcision, all the way until the time that the seed is delivered. And then we have no more circumcision. Why? Because the promise is here. The Messiah has come. And now the only circumcision that matters is the circumcision without hands, right, that Paul talks about in Colossians. Um, It's the circumcision that was promised in Ezekiel 36, that he would give us a new heart. He would enable us to believe and enable us to obey. And so again, friends, um, let me just do the summary here. The longing for fallen, this is what we learned this evening, the longing for fallen angelic relations helps explain the utter depravity of man and the need for the flood. Okay, now we have total depravity. Again, I don't know if, you know, maybe I'm pressing it too far, but it's interesting that they did evil all the time. Not even wicked sinners do that now. Okay, but that's how engrossed into evil I believe that they were. And that's why God destroyed them with the flood. The fact that those in Canaan went after the host of heaven and sinned egregiously against the Lord explains why their land was given to Israel. Okay, and and by the way, friends, that explains when people come up to you and they say, well, yeah, the Muslims may murder 3,000 Americans, but didn't your God want to wipe out the Canaanites? You know, friends, God kills us all. The issue is who is God? In other words, uh, you look at a picture from 200 years ago or 150 years ago, they're all dead, right? The point is is that God gave the command to wipe out the Canaanites. Why? Because he was judging them, judging them because of their sin. The problem is is that the Muslims are claiming something uh, that God never said. So the real issue is who speaks for God. And um, God can do with his people what he wants. And so, again, um, that gives you a reason. Why were the Canaanites given over? Well, because they were so wicked. Number three, the seed promise incorporates the land belonging to Christ. Who owns the land? Well, yeah, it's Israel, but more properly, it's actually the Messiah. So when people divide that, they're not messing just with Israel. They're messing with the Messiah. God alone cut the Abrahamic covenant, and Abraham cut the symbol of the covenant. I think that's an important point, and I think it helps us explain circumcision to the people we're discipling and uh, witnessing to. Abraham's faith, Genesis 15 said, Six led him to act in Genesis 22. Faith and obedience always go hand in hand. If you really believe, you're going to obey. And that's why James focuses on 22, Paul on 15, but they're both saying the same thing. Uh, Number six, salvation has always been through faith in Christ. Um, I can't tell you, friends, how many people I come across that think salvation was different in the Old Testament. And as you can see, once you look into the Scriptures, no, it's always been the same. It's always been by faith in the Messiah. They look forward, we look back, but it's one Savior and one salvation. Okay, so with that, I'll be quiet and I'll take your questions and comments.